0: Yup, this episode is brought to you by Lululemon Men's Underwear. I wear them, I love them. They keep me nimble and agile. Check out the new always-in-motion boxer made with silky and supportive Modal fabric, available in three packs. Find them in Lululemon stores or online at lululemon.com. Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. My guest today, Jeff Cottrell, SVP Strategic Marketing at the Coca-Cola Company. In this role, Jeff leads integrated marketing strategy across creative content media planning, entertainment, and much more for a portfolio of billion-dollar brands under the Coke umbrella. He rejoins Coke after most recently serving as president of Mullen Lowe in Boston. Jeff spent the early part of his career at Procter & Gamble. He later spent almost nine years as the CMO at Converse, where he helped the Chuck Taylor All-Star become the number one selling sneaker in the world. Jeff also spent three years at Starbucks as VP product development and marketing for Starbucks Entertainment. This is Jeff's second term at Coke. He worked for the company from 96 to 05 as worldwide group director of entertainment marketing. He chaired the Grammy foundation. He's a board member of the college football hall of fame. He has fought and won alongside many of the greatest creative minds in our industry. If you've worn shoes or drank hot or cold beverages in the last two decades, his work has very likely touched your life positively. This is Jeff Cottrell and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from? What'd your parents do? Oh, gosh, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, um, and my mom
1: was just the greatest mom in the world and still is. She was always home and always around and always with us. And my dad uh, used to uh, own a PVC pipe company, a manufacturing company, uh, and has been in and around that business for, for, for a very long time. And both of them, I mean, I couldn't be any luckier than to have the two parents that I've had. They're the reason, honestly, I, I'm grateful every day. I'm, they're the reason I'm sitting here right now. Was he a salesman? He was. He yeah. started as a salesman, and then he and a couple guys bought the company. And uh, And uh, I worked there from the time I was 15. I worked in the uh, in a manufacturing plant, and my uh, title on my card, my punching card, was maintenance helper. And uh, I did anything no one else in the plant wanted to do, I got to do. So my dad taught me at a very early age the, the value of hard work and... Uh, and the understanding of of you know what
0: hard work can get you. Doing the jobs no one else wants to do can be a very successful career strategy. Yeah, I- exactly. And it was it was it was really fun. I learned a lot, I met a lot of really nice people, and and
1: uh I wouldn't change a thing. Uh what were you into growing up? What did twelve year old Jeff want to be when he grew up? I played soccer. Uh I was a soccer fanatic. Um I played I started playing, I guess, when I was around ten or eleven. Um, uh, we had at the time in Tampa, the Tampa Bay Rowdies, and it was the first iteration of professional soccer in the United States, and you know, I idolized the guys on the team. And I played uh, through high school. I played club ball in college, and then I played until um, I just actually – I'm um, in my mid-50s, and I just stopped playing like two years ago.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, you know what? When I interview people – I mean, I grew up playing basketball, and it was my entire identity, and then I graduated from high school and was like, so – who am I exactly? Yeah. And you confront that. But now, when I interview people, it's just, it's, I'm, if I'm discriminatory in any way, it's like if someone tells me they took sports really seriously in high school, or better yet, if they went on to play in college, it's like, I want to hire you. Yeah, and it's just right. because it's, they, that's such a shorthand for telling you so much. It's like they're telling you in that moment, like, I know how to be on a team. I know how to be disciplined. Yeah. I know how to, you know, play a role. Uh, I know how to be part of something that's bigger than myself. It's like those. Those principles translate so well into a career. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I love the game. And that's why this past summer, the Women's
1: World Cup, I was completely, you know, captivated by, by it. It was such an important cultural moment, not just for soccer, but but for women in the United States. And I'm the father of two daughters. And, you know, when you see our women's team raise the cup, it's a proud moment. You know the world's going to be a better place yeah. uh, as a result.
0: Um, at what point did marketing start to reveal itself as something that you might into? Well, so I went to Florida State and
1: uh, when I graduated from Florida State, I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And uh, I w- uh, went to a couple of interviews on campus and I interviewed with Procter & Gamble. And, uh, you know, w- in fact, when they called to interview me, I thought it was my roommate playing a practical joke on me. So uh, my first response was, yeah, nice. Uh, you know, this is, this is not real. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's actually real. We want to talk to you. So so I interviewed – I took the job. I worked for P&G for 11 years. I, I started in sales and then uh, moved in to do some other things, moved to Cincinnati. Yeah. And and I was taught the basics and the fundamentals of marketing and sales at an amazing world-class company. And then I was offered the opportunity to come to Coca-Cola um, in 1996 to lead motorsports marketing for us. And that was really – as I left kind of the brand world at P&G – the very strict, structured brand world and stepped into a new role at Coke. it just uh, everything just sort of started going going a new way. I was lucky I had a, a boss named Steve Coonan who now is the CEO of the Atlanta Hawks. Um, that guy you know kind of took me under his wing and taught me how to think uh, creatively and uh, i 'm forever grateful for',
0: that's for that so, 's the thing you don 't realize those fir- that first big job or maybe even that second big job is like you are absorbing things and you are learning sort of methodology that you you can't unlearn for better or worse and exactly. so it's, if you can get in in that first job and just be lucky enough to be exposed to the right mentorship or the right company culture like yeah. it is going to set your path. So did that happen sort of was that a mix of Procter and Gamble and Coke where that happened or did it really happen in earnest once you left Procter and Gamble?
1: No, I mean I think I I'm grateful for my time at PNG. PNG yeah. was a was an amazing time. I learned again, I learned how to work in a big company, uh, you learn how to apply the skills that you learn on playing sports in terms of being on a team, and it's not really individual-based. Yeah. It is, but it isn't. Um, so, no, but but I will say I, I was at Coke then for nine years. Uh, I had an amazing time. I learned so much. And then I actually left Coke, and I went to Starbucks for three years. After that, I was with Converse for nine years. Then I ran an advertising agency for, for a year, which we can get to later. Yeah. But then I came back to Coke, and I and I feel like Coke is the place where I got my marketing wings, and it feels like you know it's a, just a great place to be.
0: Your first run at Coke is roughly '96 to 2005 as group director of entertainment marketing. I'm thinking about entertainment marketing in nineteen ninety six. I mean we barely have the internet at that point. We didn't. What have did the what at did point. internet market excuse me, what did entertainment marketing look like at that time? Were you able to sort of get what you wanted out of it? Yeah, well we didn't really have an entertainment marketing group. We'd spend a lot of time and money in sports because sports was very organized
1: and there are leagues and teams and players that sell their rights to companies right. that were easy to buy. And entertainment was a lot more messy. And I was actually doing a different job and just started on the side work meeting a bunch of people in the music industry when i was a little kid my dream was to run a record label it's a super weird dream but it was my dream when i was 13 yeah um so i started meeting people in music and started just kind of as a side hustle at work doing music stuff for all the brands and then um i showed somebody the work uh and they took me over to the cmo's office at the time and said tell him what you just told me an hour ago show him what you're doing and then I showed him, and then the CMO sort of nodded to this guy, and uh, they asked me to leave the room, and two minutes later, they came out and put their arm around me and said, congratulations, you're the first head of entertainment marketing for the Coca-Cola company. So it was a life-changing moment for me. Um, and you know, I got, I got to work in music, film, celebrity, TV,
0: all different kinds of properties, and it was, it was a great learning experience for me. It started out as like, it almost sounds like it started out as like you were like, I find that when I tell people I work for Coca-Cola, they'll take my phone calls. It's amazing. You know, maybe I'll just make some phone calls. And yeah. it's, isn't it amazing? You just start kind of following your passion. Yeah. You don't even know where it's headed. And all of a sudden, you know, a new role is forged. Oh, it was, it was, it was incredible. Right. I mean, I remember sitting in Jimmy Iovine's office for the first time
1: and uh, just wide-eyed and freaking out that, you know, this guy that started Interscope and you know he, he i just remember talking to him thinking how the heck did i get into this room this yeah. is amazing
0: the music industry i think is uniquely intimidating the personalities are really big early on in your career when you're interfacing with some of these like these names that you you know you know but you've never met did you have a hard time keeping your cool and not appearing intimidated it's funny i've never really had a hard time with that i'm ne- I've, i'm not really ever
1: starstruck um I never really have been. So I've always just sort of approached it like, you know, this is this is who I'm... I, I, quick story is I used to um, work with a guy named Daryl Cobbin who used to run the Sprite brand for us. And I did a bunch of hip-hop stuff for Sprite for a long time. And, you know, at the time, I'm, you know, mid-30s, preppy white boy wearing J Crew clothes. First things first, obey your thirst? Yeah, yeah. And I'm dealing with, you know, people like Jermaine Dupri and, and Snoop and, you know, meeting all these people. And for me, I'm just like, there's only... One person I can be—that's me. Because yeah. if I'm not, they're
0: going to know right away. So um, I've always been sort of comfortable just being the dork that I am. Little did you know, you were making that advertising for me. <laughs> I was the I was the target that's audience, amazing. so I, I know it well. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, 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 to to not be rattled and not be intimidated around celebrity actually is a skill. I feel like with these guys, it's always like for the duration of time you can treat them normal, have a conversation about what's for lunch or like what we're doing and just treat them like a family member would treat them you know there's this great energy and the second you break from that and start acting like you know when you're in your car and a cop pulls up and you're not doing anything wrong but you just feel different like you know and you can see it on their face it's like oh man we were we were normal humans for i got to be a normal human for five minutes and then this guy he just had to tell me that he's hey i just want to tell you snoop like i'm a huge fan and that first album it's like you know, and it's you, you. feel obligated. You want to share your love with them, and yeah. they understand that. But at the same time, it, it ruins whatever you know, whatever you developed with them.
1: For, for for sure. I mean, look, they have the same hopes, fears, dreams yeah. that we do. They just have a different job. Their car runs out of gas. They got to take <laughs> their car close to the dry cleaners, right. just like we do. So it's. Uh, I've never been really affected by. it. In fact, some there's there's one a musician, one band. A, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. And I've had the opportunity three different times to meet Radiohead. And all three times I've said no. And the people that, uh, their manager said, oh, come on, I'll, I'll introduce you to the band. They're downstairs in the studio. And I was like, no, I'm good. I don't want to meet them. And he's like, I thought you were a fan. And I'm like, I am a huge fan. He's like, well, then why don't you want to meet him? And I'm like, because I have absolutely nothing to say to them that hasn't already been said. Right. And I don't want to go down there and tell them how much I love their music because they don't need to know that. So the guy, I remember the manager just looking at me like, "You're like, I can't believe you don't want to meet them." I'm like, "I don't ever want to meet them because the, the, I would probably would fan out on those uh, on those guys, but everybody else, I'm pretty pretty cool with."
0: It makes sense. As a kid, I was big on like, if I saw celebrity, I wanted a, I wanted an autograph. Yeah, like, right. what am I even doing with these autographs? You know, a, a pencil, a Jason kid penciled autograph on a piece of scrap paper from Foot Locker. But um, you get older and you start working with celebrities, and you realize like the greatest gift you can give them. Is to not approach them with something that's not, that's not um, relevant to their success or to their business. Like, exactly. Um, that's the, yeah, you gave them the gift, and, and they remain sacred in your heart. For sure. So from Coke to Starbucks in the mid-2000s, now we have great internet. Um, now we're starting to see the proliferation of brand entertainment as we know it today. When you're working at a company like Starbucks that was, I mean, so beloved at the time, Um, does the brand love permit you to take risk and pursue creative ambition? Or or in a weird way, does it almost hinder you because your job is almost like, don't screw it up?
1: Yeah, no. So when I went to Starbucks, we were just starting kind of the entertainment team and division. And they had bought a, a small chain of record stores called Hear Music. Yeah. And it was at a time when the digital music was really on the rise, but there was still a huge group of people that were, were still buying CDs. And we knew at Starbucks that we had those people that were still buying CDs, and we had millions and millions of people that came into our stores every day. A lot of people, the, the number one question that used to get asked from a barista is, what is this song playing? Right. So we, we, we put a system in place to identify that, but we also thought, these are really busy people. They uh trust us from a, a coffee standpoint or from a culture and third place standpoint. They're always asking us about the music we play. We could probably sell music. So we started by making compilations and you'd be surprised like our Christmas compilation or holiday compilation would be one of the top we, we didn't chart it because it wasn't SoundScan didn't Track it, but it would be one of the top three or four records of the year in terms of total number of units sold. It was enormous. So then we kept going, and we thought, well, gosh, we can sign artists directly. So we signed. We did a record deal um, with Herbie Hancock. We did a record deal with Paul McCartney, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, where we did sort of a revenue share. We were the we were the label and the distributor at the same time. So. An absolute thrill to be able to work at Starbucks, realize my dream of wanting to run a record label and get to work with people like Paul McCartney and James Taylor. And, you know, talk about a moment when you got to keep your cool when Paul McCartney walks in the room. You have to, you know, it's difficult not to be like, "Oh my gosh, you're a Beatle. But you know, but we recorded a record with them, and it was it was it was really fun. So it it was really at the intersection of when digital music was really exploding and physical was sort of dying out.
0: We wrote it till it sort of died out. Well, I mean, it's we look back now, and and the idea of Apple Music and Spotify and subscription based music seems so obvious. It's like it For seems sure. so inevitable. The era where you were thinking about this stuff, the smartest people in the industry were pounding their head against a table trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong and how to make it right. And is this the death of music? And so what an interesting time where Starbucks was playing this role where it was exploding in culture. They were popping up everywhere. Yeah. And it was in a, lot, in a lot of ways, I mean, you're right. Starbucks was sort of the last record shop I, I probably bought my last CD at Starbucks. Yeah. I'm thinking I bought Common Electric Circus at Starbucks. That's probably the last CD I bought.
1: That's amazing. That, uh, that's awesome. But you're, you're right. I mean, you think about it, the, the music industry did this to themselves, right? They didn't, they didn't embrace digital music early enough. Um, they were putting out albums, and they were selling them for $18, and there was one good song. Yeah. So if, if you are uh, in consumer products, and you make, uh, like if I made a case of... Coke, and only one of them was good, and I'd charge you $20 for it, you probably wouldn't buy too many more, right? Every Coke needs to be good. Everything needs to taste great. And there was this process where they were just pumping out these albums with one good song, and $18 for one good song, it's going to drive people to, well, maybe I can I can go get this over here for free. So they didn't embrace it soon enough, quick enough, and it took off on them, and they, they struggled for a while. And I think that labels and the digital providers are back in balance now. Yeah. But, I mean, ever since then, the, the, the big label has not been anywhere near as important uh,
0: as it once was. The Spotify's and the Apple Music's are the powerhouses. Yeah, people, people are protecting their agenda, and then people are also protecting, you know, their passion. I mean, you talked about growing up and music it was and is your passion, and part of that passion is your experience with music, which is the – You know, the needle on a record, or for me, in my case, the popping in of a tape and it flips by itself, and listening to the whole thing beginning to the end and the one hour experience. And yeah, I've heard the single on the radio but there's there's such a depth yeah. of of art on this thing that you can't know unless you unlock it yourself and invest that time and that is not the music experience anymore. No. Did you feel at that time like you were meeting with record executives who were just stuck in this old nostalgic way of thinking about the music experience? There there were a number of them that were sort of stuck in the
1: in the way of continuing to you know, we're going to fight this thing till the end. And then there were people like Jimmy and others who saw the future early. Yeah. Um, and to think that Jimmy Iovine, who started Interscope, that then went on to ultimately run Apple Music, one day was you know
0: it was was clear that this guy had a vision from from the minute
1: the minute he saw the iPod, he knew yeah what was going to happen.
0: Everyone talks a great game about embracing change and not being afraid of change. Everyone knows the right things to say. Yeah, to actually you know in the case of Jimmy Iovine, that means like set down your entire legacy and everything everyone's ever known about you and chart a new course, that is not such an easy thing to do. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, so Converse is your first job as CMO. Uh, I'm fascinated by that position. It, it is a very rare position. It comes with, on the one hand, a lot of power and freedom to push the envelope. And then on the other hand, you know, a lot of difficult expectations that need to be met on a very short, sometimes unreasonable timeline yeah. uh, and difficult politics to navigate depending on the company. Um when you first take that job, do you ever do you do you aspire to be fully prepared, or is there just a trial by fire period where you have <laughs> to accept like I don't know what I don't know going into this job? Uh, that is such a that is such a
1: great question. So I will tell you that um, when the recruiter called me and I was sitting at Starbucks and asked me if I'd be interested in the job you know, I was like, holy cow. That, I, I couldn't even speak. I was like, absolutely. I, I, that's the perfect job for me. I would love that job. So the day, I remember the day that I started sitting in my office thinking, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And I am so underqualified for this role. So I better just keep my mouth shut and ask lots of questions and really understand what is going on and learn my way into this job. My recruiter... Two or three days before I started, told me not to unpack my bags. She's like, "You won't be there. You'll be there a year." And I thought, "Oh well, that's 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 great. I just moved my fam- moved my family across the country. Like, I wish that you that would have been great if you told me that before I took the job." And uh, and I just settled in, and then then I realized someone told me, uh, "Hey man, you're going to get fired. All CMOS get fired." And I was like, "Wow, that's that's a okay. That's interesting. Like, wow, that's kind of scary." And I thought, okay all right, so all CMOs get fired. So, okay. So I know how this, the book is going to end. I know the last two words of the book. If if it plays out the way I've been told, the last two words are you're fired. So cool. So I'm on page one. I can either sit in my office and just wait for them to come get me because I know how it's going to end. Or between now and the time it ends, I'm just going to lean in and do everything I can. And with my heart and my soul represent the consumer. And I, you know, I think a lot of CMOs forget that their role in the boardroom is to be the voice of the consumer. Uh, yes, of course, you make products that you want to sell and make money on, for sure. That's, that's the fundamentals of business. But if you don't have someone in that room constantly speaking up for the consumer and constantly thinking about the consumer and constantly finding ways to serve them with products, experiences, or services, then you're going to fail. So the more I leaned into that, the more successful we became as a brand. We we grew from you know three or four hundred million dollar business to well over two billion dollars in in a little over eight and a half nine years. And it was a team of a team of misfits, all of us, um, that rolled our sleeves up, formed a good executive team, locked arms, and and then just went for it. And it, and it worked. So it was an incredible learning experience for me um, in leadership, in marketing, and then just you know understanding you know, the consumer themselves. I would often leave an empty chair in the room when we were in the boardroom. And at the end of a meeting, I would say, before we leave, I just want you to imagine that there was a teenage girl sitting in this chair who's our consumer that we're selling this particular, these particular sneakers to. If she heard the way we talked to each other, if she heard the things that we talked about, if she heard that we didn't even mention her one single time during this meeting, do you think that she would ever buy shoes from us again? because she is always in this room with us. So we've got to act to each other, with each other, as if they're always watching the things that we're doing. We should never be doing things in secret. Everything should be so that a consumer could see it and they would understand that we're doing it for them. And uh, that was what drove me through through that role.
0: And it was, it was tons of fun. I mean, you, I, I assume that you know over the first couple months and over the first couple years, you talk about ask a lot of questions. You, know, you, you even took it as far as to say, keep your mouth shut. But on the other hand, it's like, well, they haven't hired me to keep my mouth shut. For so sure. I need to learn. When you enter a company like Converse, it's like there is a culture in place and there is a way of doing things, you know, in some ways wonderful and other ways problematic. And and I guess it's a question about Converse, but it's a question about taking any new job, especially at a mega brand, which is, you know, to what extent are you thinking about, boy, I need to I need to get up to speed. I need to learn this culture. I need to be like them to a certain extent. I need to learn the language of this company versus they hired me for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a brain that's unlike anyone else here. That's why they hired me. And it's the learn how to be like them versus they need to learn how to be a little bit more like me. Like is are you thinking about it that binary?
1: I don't know that I think about it that binary. You you think uh they brought you in for a reason, yes. But in most cases the companies that bring a CMO in are not like out of business or bankrupt or they're, you know so they 're doing some things right. right a lot of CMOs make the mistake and they come in and they think all right i 'm changing everything like everything's going to change because there's a new sheriff in town and those those are the ones if you track time, those are the ones that get fired in less than a year because they come in they disrupt too much they don 't understand what 's working they don 't look at what 's not working they don 't ask why it 's not working you know they uh, you can you should never come in and assume that that just because something's not working, that the people that are working on it haven't thought about the same solutions that you're trying to present. So you got to understand that, hey, have you thought about this? Yeah, you know what? We tried that, and A, B, and C happened. Oh, okay, great. Let's dig into A, B, and C and then just try to push the culture ahead. So, yeah, you want to put your own stamp on things for sure because your, you're in there to lead. But you're also in there to be led. Um, you know, if you, you're a CMO and you manage a couple hundred people, then your job is really not to make the ads. Your job is not to approve the copy. Your job is not to decide what well, is the out-of-home board right or not. Your job is to lead and provide direction and vision, but then, like, provide the necessary tools so that your team can get their jobs done. You're not in there to do other people's jobs. You're in there to lead the marketing organization. And many CMOs, I think, come in and think, well, I can make the advertising better. Let me do this. And it's like, no, no, no. Make sure you have the right people that know how to make advertising or know how to do digital or know how to do experiential. Put the right people in place and then just let them do their jobs.
0: Yeah, it's the sort of hero complex. I love what you said, too. And I've heard another CMO say, like, yeah, they – Of course, something is broken. Otherwise, the the position wouldn't have been open. But there's things that are going wrong. There's also a lot of things that are going right here. And do you really think that your diagnosis hasn't been thought of or discussed by other people here? And and what the CMO said to me was like, I wonder if you agree with this is, in fact, one of the great powers and freedoms that you have as a new CMO is to say out loud what a bunch of really smart people there are thinking but maybe didn't feel emboldened to say themselves. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. We, We found all the answers to uh, To growing Converse inside the house. And we had a great agency partner in Anomaly. They helped us tremendously, but it was just, we had the right, we had these people that just loved the brand and had a passion for what they thought it could be. And then we just started asking consumers what they thought it should be. And they told us, and then we responded and it worked. Yeah.
0: And then the great sweet irony is that once you accept your greatest fear that you're going to get fired in one year, you actually rewrite the end of that book. You last eight years. Yeah, almost, would you nine. Say, would you say, almost nine. Would you almost nine? Would you say the the creative high point was was Rubber Tracks? Oh my gosh, we did so many great things that no
1: one knows about. Yeah. That uh, I mean, we did. We had a three artist one song platform, and we brought people like you know uh, the Gorillas, James Murphy, and Andre Three Thousand together, and created music, and then distributed it with music videos and all that. That was super fun. But Rubber Tracks was certainly a uh, a moment of reflection for all of us. We, the the brief for the studio. It was a recording studio, by the way. For
0: yeah, let me just say really quick. Yeah. It's a it's an when we think about branded entertainment, it's one of the great case studies of branded entertainment of the last decade, and it's often imitated. If you just maybe explain a little bit of what it is and how it came about.
1: Yeah, it, it was it's a recording studio. It was it was a recording studio. It's about five thousand square feet, state of the art uh, recording studio. All the right instruments, all the right equipment great producers that work there on a daily basis, and we we brought up-and-coming artists who were unsigned that didn't really have the means to get into a studio for the first time, that had been maybe recording in their bedroom or their, their garage, the opportunity to get in a nice quiet room and knock out a couple songs or knock out two or three days of, of recording for free, and we didn't own any of the content, we didn't start a record label or we we just thought these these young creative musicians are are actually they're our core consumer. These kids have been wearing our chucks for a long time and we should say thank you to them. We shouldn't try to take anything from them. Everyone else is already trying to do that. So we should do the opposite. Let's give to them. So over five years we recorded with over three thousand artists all over the world. We we wound up we had at one point three different studios, one in Boston, New York, and then one in Sao Paulo and then we did pop up studios all over the world and it was our mission to unleash creativity was really our our mission our mantra and this was one of the ways ways that we did it and it was it was it changed every one of our lives in terms of the way we think about how powerful it can be when you truly do let go and allow your consumer do something for your consumer instead of always doing something to your consumer or throwing things at your consumer it, it, it flipped it for us. And, and what we saw every day was artists would come in, they'd be hanging out with their friends, they'd be having an amazing time, they'd pick up their phone, they'd take photos, self, selfies, shots of the studio, and then they'd broadcast them to their own social media networks and they would thank us. And then our social media network at the time when we started, had we had about 6 million fans on Facebook. This was when Facebook was the only, only real social media platform. And we got up to about 70 million people. We, we were the second largest brand on Facebook behind Coke. And we spent no money promoting our stuff on Facebook. It was all through other people more or less saying thank you and posting the music that they had, they had recorded at our studio. So it was, it was a social experiment in believing that if a brand does something pure and honest for their consumer, that they would probably pay you back in you know 10x by, by always saying nice things and having good feelings about your brand. So that was, the one more brief for the studio was, was karma.
0: Yeah. That was it. I mean, you talk about letting go and you talk about, you use the word probably there because you don't know. And the difficulty with an idea like that, and this is a recurring theme, you know, with with any agency and any company is there's lots of great ideas that look great on paper, that look great on slides. And then someone asks the question in the room, well, what's the business case for this? Mm. You know, how many shoes will this sell? Yeah. What can you assure us? Yeah. And, um... And there's bullshit answers to those questions, there but there's, are. there, there aren't always great real answers to those questions. And maybe sometimes everyone in the room is looking for a bullshit answer because they just want to make it yeah. and they need to check the box. Like we need to come up with a business case, even if it's yeah. unsubstantiated. I mean, how difficult is it to get a big brand to let go and say, "I don't know"? You know, in a lot of ways, we don't know exactly what the how to measure success on this thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's extremely
1: difficult. I remember the the meeting in in the in the boardroom. There, uh, you know, there were a number of people around the table that did not support the idea at all. Our CFO was like, you know, what's the ROI on this? And yeah. I was like, I, you know, what? I don't know because no one's ever done it before. Right. So we'll have to figure out the ROI. And uh, but there were a couple people around the table that were like, we should do this, and and supported us. So it's extremely difficult to to let go because we've been trained to always enter the room and talk about ourselves as brands and not enter the room and see what value we can add to the people that might already be in the room in the middle of a different conversation we constantly interrupt people with our advertising it's one way. I mean think about it. You get invited to a dinner party Friday night. You walk in the door. Before you walk in the door you have a choice to make. What kind of guest are you going to be? Are you going to be the guest that wants to get invited back or are you going to be the guest that they they don't ever want to see again? So you walk in, someone's having a conversation, you walk in, you're like, "Hey, what's up? I'm converse or I'm blank and they're like cool yeah I was in the middle of conversation here I know but like I want to tell you about me yeah cool but like I'm in the middle of something here (laughs) no 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 but you don't understand I'm now here you need to listen to what I have to say because I'm here and I'm gonna say something and the guests are like and what you don't know is the host is one of the people that you're interrupting and they're going who is this person they're not ever coming back to this dinner party because you were a bad guest Brands need to think about how they approach their consumers exactly the same way. What are they doing? What am I doing? Am I adding value? Am I participating? Should I interrupt them? Should I not interrupt them? And the, the, the sooner you get there, the, then you can then begin to even consider letting go a little bit because you have to let go when you have that kind of mindset. Brands need to think about the conversation that they're having with consumers that it's, if it's just one way
0: – and you wonder why you're not getting great results well, like that's probably the reason yeah I mean rubber tracks is unique in that it it was a I'm going to assume a, a relatively large investment because mm. you're creating a no so we ran the studio for five years for what one eight week flight of television costs in the United States, including production one time okay that actually makes my point even better i was just uh, yeah. I was just at a conference <laughs> with um, Fernando Machado at, yeah, at, of course. at Burger King, and he was talking you know every. All these brands want to know, like, what is the magic of of Burger King and how have they become such a, a wonderfully disruptive, culturally relevant brand over the last 10 years? And he breaks it down so simply. It's just like, I get presented ideas. If I like them and if they have voltage and if they, you know, shoot through my spine in the presentation, I start sending emails and making phone calls in the room. Yeah. And I think to myself, we'll make it. We'll make it relatively inexpensively. Either I'm right and it'll be famous and we'll keep the we'll keep the train rolling, or I'm wrong and there'll be another one exactly. and another one and exactly. another one. It's so like you talk about sort of fear of failure and accepting your fate that you're going to get fired after one year. And by accepting the worst possible outcome, it's actually freedom. Exactly. And the same can be true of ideas. Like accept the worst possible outcome. What's what's the worst possible outcome? We're not going to go out of business. No. The idea will have been a failure. We 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 you know we. We burned a little bit of money, yeah. and we learn from it, and we get up and we try again. We try something else. Yeah, and if you apply the values of, of what it is to be a good human or what it
1: is that your brand is, you know, you don't want to make people mad. You don't want to make fun of people. Like, you don't want to, you know, divide people. Like, if you apply those kinds of values to whatever the idea is, yeah. yeah, you should you should give it a try. I found that one of the reasons why we did some, some really interesting and crazy work at Converse was occasionally... I I used to tell our agency, come in blazing. Come in and automatic present stuff to me that I am automatically going to say no to. Just that in my heart, I'm like, no way. And I said, and I'll tell you that I will go home that night and I will think. I lost the courage. Like, should I have done that? Is there something in there? Are they trying to tell me something? Stretch me a little bit. Stretch, stretch me. And then occasionally... You could see it in your agency's eyes that they really believed in something, and occasionally, even against your gut and your heart, and even in some cases, the data. You go, okay, you know what? Let's do that. And then what happens is the agency lights up, they put everything they have into it because it's an idea that they really believe in. And oftentimes, it turns into something incredibly surprising and and successful. So occasionally, you know, you just say yes yeah. to your
0: agency. Occasionally. Yeah. We'll <laughs> I try to, to say yes all the time. I'm just well, I'm just joking. We'll get to we'll get to your current term at Coke, but I wonder, you know, one of the great things about your career is you have this diverse background. You've worked for these incredible companies that are that are have their own cultures and have their own success stories. Um, and it inqu- it requires such an investment, not just of brain power, but of of heart and intensity. When you leave a job at a place like Starbucks or at a place like Converse after almost nine years, is it easy to sort of cut emotional ties, no. or is it like an ex girlfriend who you'll always have a soft spot for, and you're always sort of like, I wonder, wonder what that brand's up to? Yeah. No, I uh, no, I I didn't cut ties
1: with. I, I cut ties, and uh, still long for all those brands. The reason I came back to Coke yeah. was because I left Coke and always wondered what's it like still at Coke. I because I I loved that place and I felt like I could, I felt like I had unfinished business and I had more to contribute to the company and to to the brand. So yeah, no, it's a, it's very emotional when you leave when you leave a brand, particularly when you put so much of your your heart and and soul into it.
0: I mean, it's you know it's how you make a living, so you better love it. There's a great samurai quote that says, once you know the way broadly, you see it in all things. Uh, do you see any consistent thread across all of these diverse experiences that you have, whether it's about management philosophy or about how to engage with consumers? You talked about that maybe a little bit, but is there something that you go, you know, no matter the job, no matter the challenge, like there's one or two things that if I if I don't lose sight of that, everything else will be okay.
1: Yeah, well, I always go back to the consumer. I always go back to the consumer and then I always will go back to the purpose of why we're there. I used to, we used to have a saying at, at Converse, our conviction was, uh, Converse believes that unleashing the creative spirit will change the world, and it was on all the walls in the building, and it was a it had nothing to do with sneakers. And any time that I got kind of wound up and caught up in something, and and I had a riddle in my head, I would go stand in front of this giant chalkboard and I would just stare this stare at it and right. and think about how I okay this should answer my questions. Same thing with Coke. I mean, we are you know we are here to refresh the world, provide moments of happiness and optimism, you know, and add value yeah. you know? to the, like. So we, it's, out of the, it's out in front of the Roberto Gasweda Auditorium. And no joke, I sometimes get out of my office when I'm struggling with something. And I go and I stand in front and I read that. I read it. Yeah. And it reminds me why we're here to refresh the world. That's very inspiring.
0: Well, no matter where you work, working at Coke yeah. is, is unlike any other marketing job in the world. I mean, in some ways, Coke invented modern advertising um, you know, over the course of the last century plus. So you return for a second term. does it feel like you know slipping on an old pair of boots? Does it feel like the company you left, or does it feel like you 're actually in a lot of ways you know starting at a company that you, you don 't recognize all that much
1: that 's a, that's a, a a great question. I was very nervous coming back, wondering what, what was the an, what was the answer to that question was going to be, and I found it to be exactly the same and completely different in every moment, so it was a juxtaposition of Wait a minute! I'm in the same room I was in 15 years ago, different people talking about some of the same things. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's some great, great things about the Coca-Cola Company and working at the Coca-Cola Company. You know, our brands—we've got ridiculously smart people. Like, you, you, I, when I look around the table in an average meeting that I'm in at Coke, and I think about that versus other places I've been, the caliber at Coke of, of talent is just—it's—it's it's incredible. Um, and then, you know, I came back because I, I, I studied some videos. I did a lot of research. And James Quincy, the CEO, was, is really pushing the company to to transform itself from just a sparkling beverages company, which is our heart and soul and always will be, to a total beverage company to think about consumers and the fact that they drink eight drinks a day. And currently, our company gets one of those eight drinks. And that there's massive, massive upside opportunity for this place to not only continue to grow our core brands like Coke and Sprite and Diet Coke, and Coke Zero Sugar, but to also invest and grow brands like Smart Water and uh, Vitamin Water and you know a, a number of our other brands. So it's an exciting place to be. It's like I said, so it's completely the same and completely different. And the completely different is that we have so many new brands, so many more brands. Uh, that we're trying to to get in the marketplace. So I never, I've not once had a boring day at Coke because like you're working on four or five different brands on any given day. <laughs> it's it's fun. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean the layman hears Coke and they go, okay, so you're you're constantly thinking about the the marketing of of Coke Original. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, it's like it's actually the thing I'm sort of most fascinated by by your job is I mean, you could work. 20 hours a day and there would still be work left on the table at the end of that day just because there's so many brands. They're billion-dollar brands. They're each carving out their own space in their own lane, yeah. not just within the category, but within the building. I mean, there are, there are products that overlap within the building. I mean, do you do you have a system of prioritization or do you just kind of approach each day as like, where am I needed and kind of solve problems as individually as possible to do what's best for it's each brand? Kinda,
1: it kind of has to be a mix of both. And yeah. we have our big big priorities that we're trying our big initiatives that we're bringing into the market or that we brought into the market that obviously need a lot of focus but you realize in a job like this that you can't you can't manage every detail of every single thing and you have absolutely the only way to be successful in a job like this is to trust your people to to have good people around you and to trust them and allow them to do their jobs because if you find yourself trying to do somebody else's job Therefore, that means you're not doing your job. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, there's never you never have a day where you're like, I got everything done. Nope, there's nothing to do tomorrow. There's every morning the sun comes up and we've got to get right back at it. We're not entitled to the success that we have or that we've had. We, we're not. We're 133 years old, but we're not entitled to success. We have to earn it every day. And uh, I think... Having that mindset of getting up in the morning and thinking, okay, how am I going to start my day? I'm going to start my day by thinking about the consumer and how we're going to serve them with lots of different brands. Yeah, that that kind of guides me through the day.
0: No, I mean, if you if you were an SB, SVP of just one billion dollar brand, that that in and of itself would be a worthy challenge. And so it's just a very different type of job. And you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's there has to be a chain of command. What I love about Coke, I mean, you know, as a as a as a creative director at, at heart, you. Get to go and experience so many different corporate cultures and so many different types of clients and client cultures. And sometimes, as we talked about, it can be intimidating that, you know, when you first walk into Coke, my days at Crispin, I remember I'd fly in for meetings for Coke Zero. And it's just like you can kind of, you know, you can hear the ghosts right. of decades and a century of great advertising that shaped the advertising world. And you feel like, it's, I almost feel like it must be like a Saturday Night Live writer. It's like, it will not be helpful to you if you're thinking about like John Belushi and Dana Carvey and Will Ferrell while you're trying to write a sketch. It will paralyze you. Right. And the same is true when you walk into Coke. It's like, don't be thinking about Mean Joe Green. You know, if, if, if your story is a book and you're writing chapters, yeah.
1: we, we, the people that are at the Coca-Cola company now, we have the pens in our hands. And it's up to us to write the next chapter of history. Yeah. It's to respect and not uh, soil our past in any way. It's to bring that forward, but it's to bring it forward in a modern and a, a way for today's world and to write our own chapter. We have a massive opportunity every day when we come to work that there's that blank sheet of paper and what we do, what we write, if you will, it becomes the, the, the next chapter. So we got to leave this place better than when we found it. And that's we found it in great shape. So it's there's a high level of pressure to maintain and, and to grow and to keep the reputation of the brands and the company, you know, in a, in a, good, in a good place.
0: Well, what, what makes that easier, I think, is once you get over that sort of ghost in the hallway phenomena, everyone who works at Coke, for the most part, at least everyone that I've interacted with, like, they're all former agency people. Lovely. And so once you get past that, it's like, these are my people. Totally. Between Converse and your return to Coke you were president of Mullen Lowe. Yes. And I mean, that seems like your first big foray onto the agency side. Uh, how did that experience kind of change you once you returned to client side at Coke?
1: Uh, it was a great experience, first and foremost. I was there a year, um, I think a couple of months in, I kind of realized that maybe my skills were better suited on the client side, just because I'd been a client for so long. Yeah. And um, I met some amazing people at Mullen Lowe. I learned a ton about how an agency works, about how an agency makes money, uh, how their staffing structure works. And I'm now a better informed client. I also saw uh, and was in meetings at 2 o'clock in the morning when the creatives hadn't slept you know, two days and they were had stuff all over the walls and they were getting ready for a presentation. And then the next day, a client walked in and just sort of blew off the idea and didn't take the time to realize that maybe a lot of work went into just that one page right. uh, in the presentation. So it gave me uh, an insider's view and much more appreciation for the work that it takes for an agency to help a client you know, realize creative ideas. And, and I was a little shocked at how many clients were, were disrespectful to the creative process and all the work that had gone into whatever meeting we were in at the moment. I was I was very surprised. I think that if the if America's the world's corporate CFOs knew how badly some of their CMOs treat their agencies, and how the agencies then don't like you pay the client CMO pays the agency a million dollars and they treat them really bad, they get exactly what they pay for. Yeah. If they if they give them a million dollars and they treat them really really good, they get more than what they paid for. And I would say that there are so many CMOs wasting money because they're treating their agencies, not like their partners, but as a vendor or somebody who works for them instead of somebody that can give them context and a different way of thinking. Um, and it's, I, that was the
0: greatest learning for me was, woo-wee, wow, I'm going to be a way better client. Yeah, this toxicity <laughs> of like, I mean, I've, I've I've seen it, you know, and I've witnessed it of like, it feels like this relationship is this brand is paying to a to be abusive yeah. to, to this company, which is ridiculous. And it ladders up, it tends to be, you know, and sometimes it's the, you know like I'm guessing that might be, that might have been what it looked like at Blockbuster video. You know, sometimes the product is flawed and all the advertising in the world yeah. can't make up for it. And, so, and that can come out really sideways where people, you know, they don't know what to do. So they're, you know, their bosses are lashing out at them internally and that becomes sort of the modus operandi. And so that's what they're learning from their bosses' acceptable behavior and they're doing it to their agencies. And so, yeah. I mean, that's one of many reasons that it happens. I don't
1: think that uh, clients get great work. From being angry yeah. at their agencies, I just don't. It, intuitively, it doesn't tell me that I'm going to get the best work if I'm if I'm angry all the time at my agency. So. Um, yeah, that was a great learning for me, and I'm, I think I'm, I have a broader perspective, certainly how both sides of the, the equation work now.
0: That's fascinating. Well, as part of managing multiple brands, you manage multiple agencies. Uh, sometimes agencies are asked to join forces. Sometimes agencies are after the same jump ball. It just comes with the territory when you're working for large brands that employ yeah. multiple agencies. Um, What is your expectation of agencies when it comes to collaboration? Yeah, it's a good question. First and foremost, I think as a client, you've got to trust your agencies. You've got to give
1: them clear direction, trust them, and you have to expect honesty. And you have to hold them accountable for being honest to you. Uh, Many times we pay agencies and then we, we get mad at them when they tell us the truth. Uh, We need you to tell us the truth because we are so close to our business and so close to our brands, no matter where you are, at Coke, at P&G, anywhere you are as a marketer. You're so close to your day-to-day work that you lack context sometimes. And an agency can come in and give you that context, and they can say, hey, you're thinking about this. No, no, no. Like, you need to listen to us. So you need to trust them. You need to require honesty. And then the minute they're not being honest with you, you need to let them go. Like. That should be the core, that should be the fundamental agreement between a client and agency. You lie to me or you tell me what you think I want to hear, then we shouldn't work together anymore. Because we're actually paying you to help us express our brand in the world that we might not understand as well. As you or you might have a different understanding in a different way, so first and foremost, I think you have to have trust and honesty. Second, then, you have agencies that are specialists in different things, and when you 're trying to get one initiative to market and you 've got two or three or four agencies in a room, we bring them together, we have an agency council council uh, process where we bring all of our agencies together, they get a brief on a project, we expect them to work together we 've seen agencies that on the street would be fierce competitors being conference rooms and, and collaborating and working together and making ideas better. So uh, when it works, when agencies come to the table, give us honesty and then are willing to, to, to work uh, on a team, then they tend
0: to be successful you know, working with us. I always like to make the joke like if the agency relationship is being ma- managed by two mid-level account directors, it will be like spy versus spy where they're always trying to sort of blow each definitely, other up. Definitely. When it's at a very, when the relationships are being cultivated at a senior level yeah. and the two agencies can see oh, like these two CCOs, they show up to the same room and they have mutual respect for each other. Look at the way they talk about each other. Look at the way they're open to each other's ideas. Yeah. Well, then it just cascades down and so like it really has to be at that senior level. Well, at least so. that's has worked for us for sure think about it if we all work together and we bring the best possible ideas and concepts to
1: the marketplace and they work for consumers they make consumers happy they make consumers consume more of your product our business grows then your business grows yeah if you come into a room and you're not collaborative and you're disruptive and you're fighting against it and we bring an idea to market that doesn't work that consumers don't love that consumers don't ultimately purchase our products we all lose you lose, too. Yeah. So it, it, it's in everybody's best interest to get in the room, forget where you came from, you know, and but bring the expertise uh, uh, from the place you're from and, and, and you know, collaborate and deliver.
0: You guys have been on a roll lately. Uh, my personal favorite <laughs> being the partnership with Netflix to revive <laughs> New Coke for Stranger Things Season 3. Uh, like, we've talked about it. I mean, this is a hard job um, where it's really hard to do something that makes a legitimate dent in culture how gratifying was it for you to see that idea sort of light up the press and social media like it did? I mean, I, there's a, so first of all, there's a a big group of people that
1: worked on this and we were all, I think, you know, initially it was a small group of people that would sort of look at each other and think, I can't believe we're even thinking about doing this. And then, uh, you know, we have, uh, our leadership at the very top of the company is very courageous. We took them the idea and, and, uh, and they supported it right away, and so we we had been on a journey when I, I first met James Quincy, and James would tell me, and he'd tell Stuart Kanagi, who who runs our sparkling business, you know, how are you thinking about things like Netflix? How are you thinking about the 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 platforms where people are spending a ton of time, but there's no advertising? How, how are you going to integrate yourself into that? So we had had a number of conversations with Netflix, and we weren't really finding the right thing because we we just didn't want to plunge our brand into something. And they, by the way, they won't let you. They actually called us and said, basically, are you sitting down? And we were like, yeah, what's up? And like, well, I mean, no, you, we really need you to be sitting down. It's basically how it went. And, uh, you know, we just came from a meeting with the Duffer Brothers. This was Netflix talking. Came from a meeting with the Duffer Brothers, the creators of the show, and and they've got this idea. St- season three is 1985. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the first two seasons, you guys have been organically integrated into the plot lines and into, into the stories. And we're like, I know we have. It's been amazing. We haven't paid for it, but thank you. Now keep it up. Well, yeah. So the third season is 1985, and uh, they literally said, you know what happened in 1985, right? And it was like, oh, no, you're not going to ask us to do that. And they're like, yeah, well, the Duffer, we, we asked the Duffer Brothers, what could we do to, to really make sure we market this thing the right way? And the Duffer Brothers offhandedly in a meeting with their marketing team at Netflix said, well, if you could get Coke to bring back new Coke, that would be amazing. So they called us and said, they, what do you think? And, you know, we initially, of course, said, you're crazy. No way. We'll never do that. That's no, absolutely. We cannot do that. No way. Like I said earlier, you immediately say no. But then you go away and you're like, mm, gosh, we kind of have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, the whole team did it in, in, in secrecy and uh, it, was, it was very fun. I, I had the opportunity. I called Sergio Zeman, who's a former CMO at Coke. Uh, and the the man responsible for launching Diet Coke back in this day, and the, and the guy responsible for New Coke, and ultimately left the company after the New Coke situation. Um, mm-hmm. I called him the night before the press hit and said, I, "I, you know, I'm not sure if you remember me. I worked for you years ago. I was a little, brand, you know, little tiny person in the organization." And uh, I said, I'm, "We're doing something tomorrow that I need you to know about." I said, "We're we're we're bringing back New Coke as part of this New Stranger uh, Stranger Things thing," and. Uh, you know, it's, it's a big deal. And he's like, you're going to do what? I'm like, look, I'm calling you because I, out of respect, we are not doing this to make fun of anything that happened. We're doing it because we're representing Recreating 1985. And I, we just wanted you to know. And there was a two or three seconds of silence, and I thought, oh, here it comes. And then there was a small chuckle. And he started laughing. He goes, well, it's about time. Way to go. Yeah. And and he was blown away that we called him and, and told him. But it was, because it was a sensitive topic at at the company. It was always the thing that we never talked about. But then now, like, again, I, I point back to James Quincy and him really evolving the company. 10 or 15 years ago, that would have been an absolute no, you're crazy, don't ever bring it up again, kind of an idea. Um, You know, when it was taken to him and he said, Yeah, do that. I mean, that's really a representation of a new company, a new Coca-Cola, a new way of thinking. Um, And it is incredibly inspiring to work at a place that would have the courage to do something like that. And it was an honor and just a real pleasure to be part of the team that did that.
0: When you think about the job of Coca-Cola CEO and the responsibilities uh, it entails, I mean, it's enough to sort of break your brain. Marketing is just one small part of of, sure. a, of a huge docket. Um, is that the type of idea? I mean, that's a that's a sort of an outlier idea. Is that something that you know that you want the CEO to sign off on, or does that something that you know he sees the same time that I see it?
1: Uh, on, on an idea like that, I think you kind of want to get <laughs> yeah.
0: the. I um,
1: it was a very unique situation. I think you want to make sure everybody uh, knows uh, and everybody, first and foremost, agrees and says it's okay. To to do it so, like I said, uh, it was uh, everybody at the senior levels of the Coca Cola Company when they were exposed to the idea, all said, "Well, you have to do this." I mean, it's 1985, and the this, this, the the whole season is 1985. They are creating recreating the year. If you Google ni- news 1985, like the, the the an overwhelming number of search results are New Coke. Right. So for them to even. Reference 1985 without referencing New Coke would have been would have been inauthentic. So we, we
0: we felt like we needed to participate. When it comes to an idea like that, I mean yes, there's a lot of stakeholders, and you're not the only decision maker. But in your role, you know you have all these people you trust, but you know you want to be brought ideas that excite you, and you know you want business cases to be as attached to them. But your personal taste is part of the job. There's no sort of you know um, un- untethering that from the role. So like when something like that comes to your desk or maybe more broadly just in your day-to-day of looking at work and analyzing work and seeing what does and doesn't excite you, you know, sort of what is your relationship to your gut instinct? Do you you know, do you have a firm trust of your gut instinct? Have you been in this long enough to know, like, you know what? Sometimes my gut instinct is betraying me. Oh, for sure, I'm 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 wrong a lot, and I'm I'm
1: fine with being wrong. In this particular case, it wasn't any one person's decision. Right. Uh, it was a you know, no one person was going to make that call. Right. We needed to make sure that there were a whole bunch of people that made that call together, that were were involved in it. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I like I said earlier, I try not to do other people's jobs. So I have people who are responsible for advertising. Uh, when they bring me stuff and they tell me that they like it, I might have a little tiny tweak here and there, but like that's their job. They're better at that than I am. So I trust that the ads, the 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 content, the work that they bring me. When our Connections and Media team comes to me with a media plan, you know, I'm not a media expert. I know enough to be dangerous, but at the same time, I trust that they know what they're doing because they do. And I, I trust them and I support their, you know, typically support their plan. So it's not for me, it's never really been about decision making. like, yeah. th- And I think that's a mistake a lot of young leaders make. I've got the decision. You don't have the decision. And it's like, no, no, if you're, if that's your mindset, I have the decision and you don't, then we're never going to get to a place where we're, we're realizing potential we hadn't even thought about. We need to figure out how to resolve conflict and work through conflict, but not make it about decisions. So I try very, very hard. I often fail. I sometimes fail. To not ever make it about I I get the decision on this. I try very hard to let other people make the decisions, and if I have a problem or an issue, I will certainly voice it and communicate it, and we'll talk about it. But ultimately, I try to let people make make the call themselves.
0: Yeah, a couple more as we wind down yeah, here, yeah, quick ones. Sure. Uh, I like to ask, you know, what is a quality that you admire in another CMO or SVP, you know, outside the Coca Cola company that maybe you wish you had a little bit more of.
1: Uh. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had a little bit more of everything. I'm far from from perfect. I will tell you the things that I admire in in marketers are marketers that have the courage to try new things, to try to do things that have not yet been done. Marketing is a, a business of copycats. Uh, it is a business of buzzwords, uh, branded content, influencers, all that kind of stuff. And once the the term is thrown out there, all marketers chase that word. And it's... It, I I admire the ones that don't. Yeah. I admire the ones that that set their own path and have the courage to try to do things differently. And I've tried my best and I've often failed, but I try to be that kind of person more than – if everyone else is already doing something, that means everyone, everyone else is already doing it. And that, that means there's probably not a lot of originality in the things that everyone else is already doing. So I always look for the quiet space and think ooh there might be something interesting over here
0: what have you seen lately that that made you jealous oh jealous that's a
1: good that's a good question i i'll tell you some work that i really admire i admire what widen and kfc have done over the past couple of years like to reinvent a brand and a category that was kind of pretty stagnant and a brand that in, in all honesty, probably five or six years ago, you would think, wow, what? Like, who is that? What brand? Is that? Oh, that's such an old brand. But f- for them to reinvent the idea of the kernel, for them to reinvent the idea of the kernel and it not just be one person, and for their ability and courage to do some funny stuff and to push the envelope a little bit, and then to evolve it to then back to product and to back to the things that they're selling, I, I think they've done a really, really nice job. I I have a lot of respect for the the folks that run the marketing over there at KFC I think they're I think they're pretty smart and the burger king guys are are amazing as well i mean they those guys are like you know they're they're very courageous and uh, and i love that but but the, in terms of a brand reinventing itself i'd say kfc's been the one that i go yeah nice job
0: yeah i often say that that sometimes the quality of great advertising is it feels so obvious in hindsight and yeah. you know and we you know when coke you know, New Coke and Stranger Things, it feels obvious in hindsight, but you took us through the journey of like, there's actually a lot of sensitivity around this and there's backstory that people don't realize. And, um, and so there's a process involved to, to getting to an acceptance and an embracing of that idea. And I think the same is so true of KFC. It's like, yeah, well, it's obvious in hindsight, you're going to get all these different actors. And, but now imagine pitching that idea to KFC executives who, you know, prior to the creation of that campaign, they hold the colonel in a very specific light and like this was the founder of the company yeah. and yes he was bigger than life and you know yes he's been used comedically but it's almost like imagine pitching that while being sensitive to not sort of besmirching the you know the legacy of this person it's like so we're going to turn him into a cartoon character Yeah. and gilbert godfrey will be him and you know Yeah. and um you know there's a real there's a real art form to to explaining that idea and explaining the power of that idea without, you know, offending everybody in the room. For sure. I, and I think I mean I don't know that this
1: is 100% accurate but I, but but I've talked to a couple of people who've sort of said the same thing. The initial concept was just to reinvent the kernel and then when I think when they got to shoot the first one or two, the kernel that they chose was very difficult to work with. Right. So on the fly, they were like we should change the kernel. And then it became a much bigger idea so i i don't know for a fact whether it was in the original pitch that we're going to have multiple kernels or not but the fact that they've done that and and, in in an unapologetic way has been you know it's it's fun to watch it's fun to watch that stuff
0: you need i mean you just that that speaks to the role of luck you know in this business and like you stay at it and you get lucky in that case it's like you know what i mean i've never heard that story before but thinking about it's like you know what if you pitch the idea as it currently exists probably no way to say yes to that idea. Yeah. You actually need to sell something that's a little bit easier to say yes to, and then sort of, you know, let let fate intervene. And it doesn't feel like, you know, a boardroom of people are like, yep, we're going to cre- create Sat- the Saturday Night Live cast of kernels. It's just like, it happens organically, and yeah. we didn't make this one big decision. Yeah. you know. So
1: And the fact that, I mean, they're not taking the, the world too seriously. Yeah. Like, that's the... That's the thing. Like uh, marketing, advertising should make people feel good, should make people feel something, and sometimes just make people laugh yeah. and uh, and not be so precious and so serious about your brand and its position. And, you know, we we as marketers sit around all day and we worry about our – we pontificate about one word in a brand positioning statement that consumers – have no idea. Yeah. And like I said earlier, if the consumer knew that we were having this conversation about this particular word in this particular brief, they'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thirsty. Just give me something to drink. <laughs>
0: as, after as long as you've been in this, I'm, I'm guessing that you have the same, uh, you have the same thing happening to you when you watch TV that I do, which is you can watch every commercial and you can hear oh, yeah. the series of meetings For that sure. led to either a great spot or a not so great spot. No, know. no, you can tell, you can see the
1: clients, in many cases, the client's hands uh, on like oh oh that could have been so much
0: better, <laughs> but I know I know why you did that because you had to. Yeah, you felt like you had to. So yeah, no I, I yeah it's fun. It's you fun men- you me. mentioned buzzwords. Uh, is there one word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Um,
1: yeah, I'm honestly I'm so sick of the word influencer. Mm. Like the the whole thing is just so like every marketing plan, every marketing, every read the magazines. Oh, it's influencer this and influ- I'm like come on, every single person in the world has influence period. Uh, And it's what you do with and for them that they will take their influence in an authentic way and tell other people about it. Back to rubber tracks. Rubber tracks was all about influence, but it wasn't about influencers. It was about doing something for people and knowing that if you did it right and you did a good thing for them, that they would then turn and tell their friends. The influencer game today is I'm going to pay you because you have a lot of followers to give me a fake association with my brand to try to make me look cool and to not give the consumer credit that they can see straight through that is, is, uh, is, is, is a bit of a joke to me. So influencer is the word right now, and th- there'll be another
0: buzzword that comes out in the next year or two, but th- th- it's about time for us to move on. Jeff Cottrell, I will not call you an influencer, but <laughs> I will thank you for the incredible influence you've had on the marketing industry. And thank you for joining me today and sharing wisdom. Uh, collected over an incredible career. Thanks, man. It's been great to get to know you. a little Listen,
1: better. I'm I'm grateful to be asked, uh, and I'm I really enjoyed this, and it's an honor. So I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thanks.
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you so much to Jeff Cottrell. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello, and JSM Music, and a very special thank you to Acoustic, the audio post company who helped produce this podcast. If you're liking the podcast, please share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe, write a really nice review. And until we talk again, peace.